Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I won't just turn the car around. I'm going to shut it off. I'm going to kick you out and I'm going to make you walk home. This Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, July 23rd, 2020. Of course, you're listening to it anytime because it's a podcast. As I always do with uh, podcasts, I actually get the newspaper out and read what's on the headlines so you have a sense of what uh, the world is going through uh, as you listen to this podcast 10 years from now. Unfortunately, I left all my newspapers in another room, so all I have is the arts and entertainment section of today's Tribune <laughs> and the headline. <laughs> Talk about preparation. God damn, how does this guy even have a podcast? Talk about preparation, D. How about this, though? I, I love this headline. Headline on the arts and entertainment section of July 23rd, 2020, 40 thoughts on Caddyshack. Yeah, Caddyshack is 40 years old. I love Caddyshack, D. You like Caddyshack, D? Yeah, it's a classic. It is a classic. I believe you were, what, like uh, 40 years old yourself when that movie came out, right? (laughs) Actually, D, I was 62 years old when Caddyshack came out. Guys, he's like 120. Uh, 102 years old, the oldest podcaster in America. All right, as I do with all bonus episodes of our podcast, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hello, uh, my name is Miles Camp-Lassen. I am um, semi-regular guest here on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Uh, for my day job, I am a web editor at In These Times Magazine, a left-wing political magazine based in Chicago, but uh, covering national issues. And uh, yeah, I write elsewhere, um, post on uh, Twitter.com, and do all kinds of other stuff in my free time, but very happy to be here. All right. Very good. Very happy to have you back, Miles. He's a regular on this show. Uh, I have a whole list of things that Miles and I intend to talk about. Trump and the federal troops, law and order for everyone except for Donald Trump, uh, lawsuit against the feds. This is something that Miles just uh, alerted me to. I didn't even know about it. Uh, Rising unemployment and congressional bailout. And Lori Lightfoot, her national reputation as opposed to her local reputation. We'll get into all those issues and more. But before I do, Miles, just have to ask you, uh, have you ever seen Caddyshack? You know, I'm actually a big fan. I think that the uh, there's the classic pool scene with the yeah. baby Ruth that we all know so well. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also, uh, you know, Bill Murray's iconic uh, uh, voice that I don't, you know, if people try to do the Bill Murray from Caddyshack frequently, I won't try to do it, but I think it is um, uh, 
you know, one of the one of the great uh, characters in comedic cinematic history. So, yes, big fan of Caddyshack. I'm a big fan, too. I've seen it like 5,000 times. And when I saw this headline uh, this morning with, with the paper, my wife and I both both said, we got to watch Caddyshack again. Because my favorite, hands down, in Caddyshack. We're going to move on from Caddyshack. My favorite, hands down, Rodney Dangerfield. I love Rodney Dangerfield and Caddyshack. So, I just, just seen him. I miss Rodney Dangerfield. So, I'm going to go watch it again this weekend. All right, let's get down to business, Miles. Uh, let's start off with Trump and the federal troops. I have my theory, which I have been offering up to the listeners all week long as to what Donald John Trump is doing uh, by uh, dispatching federal agents of various sorts to uh, cities with Democratic mayors. Portland's getting them, Chicago's getting them, and so forth. But what's your theories as to what Donald Trump is up to by sending out these uh, federal agents? So today, uh, this morning, actually, it's a Thursday morning, um, a lawsuit was filed uh, against um, the, the feds, essentially, against uh, DHS and Chad Wolf, I believe is his name, uh, uh, the guy who you maybe have seen on all the conservative shows uh, talking about the need to, you know, quash civil unrest and send in federal troops. Um, the, the lawsuit was uh, filed on behalf of a series of organizations, including Black Lives Matter Chicago, uh, Let Us Breathe Collective, legal organizations like National Lawyers Guild, um, and as well, the In These Times uh, staff union signed on board. So I'm actually a plaintiff in the suit itself. And what it uh, alleges is that this is a attempt to trample on our First Amendment rights, the, uh, the sending in of federal troops. Um, there has been, as we've seen in Portland, it's essentially a paramilitary operation. I mean, it's almost like an American Gestapo. You're seeing uh, camouflage troops with no identification as to who they are um, disappear people, throw them into unmarked cars. These are often rented cars, so there's no way to really track them down. Um, they're not answering questions about who they're representing. Um, we are learning that some of them are custom boredom, border patrol agents. Some of them are actual DHS, Department of Homeland Security agents. But there's so much unknown because that's kind of the idea, you know, is to, to confuse the population and um, really tamp down and scare off protesters. So uh, there's been back and forth, as I'm sure, you know, listeners are familiar. There's uh, initially Mayor Lori Lightfoot had said, we're not going to allow any of these Trump's agents in Chicago. Then it seemed like she backpedaled and said, well, if they work in collaboration with the CPD, you know, we welcome that. And she gave a number, I think, of 150 or her team did uh, troops that were planned to be dispatched. Well, last night uh, uh, on Wednesday, Trump said actually he's sending hundreds of agents to Chicago from multiple agencies. Uh, so there's just so much unknown about what uh, is actually happening, how it's going to look in the ground. But as we can see from Portland and other cities, uh, journalists are targeted and uh, they operate essentially with immunity, these, these, these agents. So that's why we signed on board with this lawsuit. It's gotten, you know, some, some mainstream media coverage. It's unclear yet what exactly will come of it. Um, but five law firms and clinics, including, as I said, the People's Law Office and also Levy and Levy, which is based at Northwestern, signed on board. Uh, but there's at least nine different community groups. And, uh, and it alleges a number of things, not just that, you know, we're trying to stop 
agents from being deployed to Chicago, but also the way that the policing is currently happening is both discriminatory and already lacks transparency, even without these federal agents. Um, that's what we've seen. I mean, the about 80 percent of the people that have been arrested in these protests have been black and about 90 percent have been people of color. So it's clear that this is being uh, racially uh, targeted in terms of its enforcement. And uh, I think it's a real critical moment right now when we've seen, I mean, your original question about what Trump's really up to. I think this is a clear attempt to completely just shift gears from the actual concerns of Americans, which is the uh, absolute disaster of a response to the COVID-19 pandemic and then also the resulting economic fallout. Rather than actually address any of those issues, Trump has decided to switch gears and just go full law and order, you know, saying he's going to be the candidate who, or who's going to, you know, stamp out all these protests and bring order back to our lives. Unfortunately for him, that's not really reflected in polls. Just look at all the the moms in Portland that are out forming lines against the cops uh, now that they're organizing in Chicago too. Uh, I think it's a clear demonstration that what people that the, for one thing, these are the largest. This is the largest U.S. social movement in history, according to, you know, all the data we have in terms of the participation rates. And it's popular. You know, people are backing the demands of the protesters, supporting Black Lives Matter. So I don't think it's going to be successful for Trump, but he has kind of a one track mind. And it seems like that's what he's determined to do. So that's why we're in court to stop him. Well, let me just uh, make one thing perfectly clear uh, to paraphrase uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Uh, there, uh, This is a political operation, in my humble opinion, by Donald John Trump uh, to send in these agents. And uh, it's quite distinct from a legitimate law enforcement operation. And as such, Miles, get your reaction to this. I see a distinction here. So uh, the, the, the Republican propaganda machine uh, is highlighting two elements of disorder. And I put that in quotes, two elements of disorder. One are protesters uh, to a great de- degree. It's Black Lives Matter protesters or defund the police protesters or just anarchists and groups of people who are just protesting because they love to protest, uh, and particularly in Portland. And uh, those are the people that I think Donald John Trump cannot wait to send in uh, agents to round up. Uh, just if he could, if he was young enough and spry enough, I wasn't so, so scared. Uh, he'd probably go out himself and bash them over the head. Uh, but he's too chicken to do that himself. And then there's the issue of gun violence. In, in cities like Chicago. And Donald Trump uses that for propaganda points as well. That is where, in my humble opinion, uh, a alliance between the White House and uh, local entities and municipalities, states, etc., would be warranted as we try to figure out sort of like a, a well-rounded way to end the violence or curtail the violence. I don't think Donald Trump has any interest at all in curtailing that violence. I don't think he wants to in any way get at the essential causes of it. Uh, And so I don't know what impact whatsoever him sending an agent to Chicago will have on violence like that in Chicago. Uh, I think it's a purely political operation. What do you think about my distinction in Donald Trump's mind between protesters uh, and gun violence? Yeah, I think that that's certainly one of the... um 
issues that his team is pointing to as rationale for this deluge of um, of troops is that there's you know uh, violence on the streets. It's um, uncontrolled, and that we need to you know crush it essentially through. Uh, as they call as they call it, flooding the zone. Um, I think that that's uh, a technique that we've seen employed in the past. I would just say in response to that, there was a shooting here, a mass shooting, where uh, over a dozen people, I think, got shot uh, yesterday, the day before, here in Chicago on the south side at a funeral. It's got quite a bit of coverage, and there were two police units that were actually monitoring that funeral because they knew that this could be a source of conflict. They didn't stop the, the, the this shooting from happening. I think it's very misguided to put all your faith in crime reduction in, um, you know, a disciplinary approach where you're going to punish people. You're going to try because, because, Police officers rarely stop crimes in, you know, when they're being, um, when they're taking place, they come at, you know, the tail end and try to solve them and, you know, try to arrest people. But the way you deal with structural problems like gun violence, especially the economic and racially segregated gun violence we have in Chicago is through addressing actual root problems. And it's been shown. I mean, this isn't some, you know, far off idea. When you invest in communities and neighborhoods through, you know, after school programs, through job training, through just, you know, alleviating poverty, through providing economic uh, ladders for people that actually reduces gun violence and reduces the type of issue, very issues that Trump is claiming are uh, indicative of these democratic run cities, that it's, you know, some kind of a liberal approach where we embrace gun violence or something. It's a false narrative. And it's one that has been going on for far too long that uh, I think you're right to point out that the, there's a difference between an actual approach to uh, solving gun violence versus a completely political appeal, which is what Trump is doing. I think he has no interest in, you know, really caring about trying to quell gun violence in Chicago. It's more about stoking his base and um, trying to be seen as a law and order candidate. Uh, but again, I mean, this is some, this is an issue where we've seen, uh, Mayor Lightfoot say that she actually wants more alcohol, tobacco and firearm agents sent from the federal government to deal with the gun issue in Chicago. Well, it's a slippery slope from saying you want some federal agents, but you don't want others. And I think that helps to lead to where the confusion where we're at right now in terms of, you know, what are these agents, what agencies are they coming from and how are they going to perform their duties? So, uh, uh, yeah, there's a lot of unanswered questions there, but it's clear, I think, that the uh, a real effective solution, a robust solution, would be about empowering these communities through providing them the type of economic support they need to um, to to prosper and to flourish. Well, I, I, we'll put off uh, the discussion of the role uh, that Lori Lightfoot plays in this uh, national discussion uh, and the symbol uh, that she has become. It's a contradictory one in many ways. One I, I could barely recognize uh, from here in Chicago. We'll get into that. But uh, I'm going to pick up on something you said, which is really interesting. 
uh, I always uh, like to remind people that I am uh, much older than Miles, and I lived through this once before in the 60s and 70s. And the rhetoric, Miles, this time around uh, is uh, is uh, far right, I think, of where we were even in the 60s and 70s, because at a time of great unrest in the late 1960s, even Richard Nixon did not as openly defy like the common sense notion that poverty is connected to crime, that poverty is connected to injustice. Even Richard Milhouse Nixon did not uh, fight that and resist that. I saw something. Republicans are doubling down uh, on their it's it's not just that they want to send in troops to show that they're arresting hippies, arresting Black Lives Matter protesters, uh, but they also want to destroy the notion that there's a connection between uh, crime and poverty, inequity and poverty. And I saw this on display when that Republican uh, congressman from Florida, I believe his name is Ted, doing this off the top of my head, Yoho or something like that, confronted mm-hmm. AOC, uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez. I don't know if you follow this one. I've been obsessively following this thing. I don't know if you've been following it. I didn't prepare you for this. But when you said it, it triggered it. And he's, he, he told her that she was insane for pointing out that there's a correlation between people feeling desperate and in need of, for money and crime. I don't even recall Nixon going that far as to defy something as so basic and elementary as that. I believe there is a a strong counterpunch coming from the Republicans to try to eradicate uh, what's been conventional, liberal, lefty thought for years. What's your thoughts on this? Well, there's a whole other... terminology that uh, you uh, levied at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that we will not say on the radio, but, uh, you know, suffice it to say that I think that it was just a complete embarrassment and a representative of uh, just how these, even just having somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who is you know, has based her political career so far on amplifying and lifting up social movements and social movement demands. You know, it's a very different approach to politics than what we've normally seen in Congress. Just the, you know, possibility that she could have a voice that is on the same level as uh, this white guy in Florida uh, I think just inspired so much anger and hatred and resentment uh, that it resulted in this horrible, you know, confrontation where he used profanities against her. And there was actually a whole um, series of speeches given on the House floor today to try to reprimand him for doing this. So because yesterday he went up and gave a fake apology where he said he would never um apologize for his passion were were his words and you know what uh, what he had said to her what he called her an f and b you know and uh uh, in more explicit terms so uh you know i i think that that's exactly right that there's been so much ginning up of uh of anger and fear and this real deep polarization that at this point the GOP can't even begin to wrap their heads around a very basic issue, which is that this 
violence and crime does not it is not related intrinsically to people's race to people's gender to people's you know geographic position it results from desperation frequently you know obviously there's issues you know about people people need to be rehabilitated in certain uh, senses but the idea that crime is related to poverty has been shown again and again and again and uh, by studies by experts you know through political analyses and yet it's just anathema to much of the republican party that would rather believe that it somehow has to do again with like having a democratic mayor or you know having this approach to crime that is somehow not uh, strict enough when anybody living in Chicago can tell you that Chicago Police Department, for one thing, they already have 40% of the entire city budget, about $1.8 billion a year, um, and that's only been increasing over the years. So it's not as if, you know, Chicago is being lax on investments in policing. If anything, it's, you know, gone far overboard. That's what many activists would tell you. Um, but also even, you know, hopefully people working in like the Lori Lightfoot administration would recognize that there is the only way you're going to deal with crime is through actually, again, getting to root causes through doing the type of, um, real investments to break down these structural disadvantages that these communities face. That's, you know, that's the pathway to creating more, uh, harmony and less uh less strife and less crime in these communities but the republicans it's just it's just not in their vocabulary they can't handle it and so all they can do is scream profanities at a member of congress who dares to bring up that possibility it's actually really sad yeah it was a pretty despicable moment uh how does he pronounce his name yoho or yo who i don't know i i never heard of the dude before this went down do you know how he pronounces his name miles I don't, but you who does just remind me of the uh, sugary chocolate uh, fake milk beverage. So that's just how I will always associate him. Well, uh, I, I I gave him sort of like credit by trying to find a, a discernible uh, argument that he was making a philosophical worldview. Uh, I've heard it a lot with this just utter disdain for the notion that there's a connection between poverty and crime. And then the, the, uh, the Republicans go one step further. They say Democrats and lefties are insulting the poor. This is like they're suddenly defending the poor by cutting programs that would help the poor, raising taxes on the poor by cutting it on their. But somehow they're defending the poor. Well, how dare you say that there's a connection between crime and poverty? You're you're offending poor people. And I'm standing up for poor people. What a bunch of snakes uh, the Republican Party is. But the part. So I'm trying. I was giving him the benefit of the doubt uh, with leaving out the uh, the derogatory things he said. The part, the real sneaky part, you got me going, Miles, is that he wouldn't fess up to being a total. I'm, I try not to swear in his uh, show, but he wouldn't fess up and admit that he said the things he said, even though other people heard it. And uh, I think that's perhaps the most low life uh, part about it, his so-called apology. Talk a little bit about that. Well, not only did he say it in front of other people, he said it in front of reporters, including reporters for The Hill, who were the ones that reported him as saying, you know, calling her an effing B because 
they heard it. So the fact he went on the house floor then and said that was a lie, you know, he said that he was saying, uh, you know, a different profanity. He was muttering to himself, not referring to her when multiple people, including her, heard it. It's just, you know, it's sad. It's just an example, I think, of a lack of political courage and uh, unwillingness to be self-reflective or critical at all about clearly offensive behavior. Um, and I want to get back to something you just said about, you know, the Republicans trying to pose as if they're the ones that are protecting the poor when, you know, this, uh, this podcast I think is going to release on Saturday. Yeah. This is, uh, the day when the enhanced unemployment benefits, uh, are going to have expired because the Republicans were unwilling to, come to the table and offer an extension. This was the, you know, literally 30 million people across the United States are now relying on, at least 30 million people are now relying on this unemployment benefit to keep their heads above water. Six, it's about $600 extra a week. The GOP is now saying, well, maybe we'll consider some type of an extension in the weeks ahead, but it'll be closer to about $175 a month. That might not mean much to, you know, a hedge fund manager, but somebody who is living paycheck to paycheck, who is trying to afford prescriptions, who can't afford the rent, who's facing potential eviction, which the eviction moratorium is also up at the end of the month. That's a massive difference between 175 versus $600 a week. And the Republicans are saying, well, sorry, you know, we, uh, we, 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 we got to get people back to work. We can't give people an incentive to stay home. Well, guess what? <laughs> We're still in the midst of yeah. the deadly pandemic that requires people staying home so that we can stop the spread. Um, so it's complete, you know, farce that they would say that they're standing on the side of the poor. The other thing is, you know, the permanent job loss is accelerating. It's not, these aren't the people, this past week was the first week uh, since April that unemployment claims have actually risen. Because previously, you know, people, if we shut down the economy, millions of people have filed for unemployment. Then slowly businesses started to, you know, rehire, bring back some workers. So we were stayed steady around 1 million, 1.3 million job losses a week. Now that number is rising. It's up, it's past 1.4 million. That's the complete wrong direction and it shows, and it's because places are shutting down again, but it shows these are jobs that are not coming back. If people are getting fired now, it's not because their economies are getting shut down. It's because they're realizing that it's unsustainable to keep this workforce on. So what we need, obviously, is a massive investment so that people can survive this economic calamity, so that businesses can come back, so that you know payrolls can continue, and then so people can stay in their homes. Because, as I said, this eviction moratorium is going to end. Thank goodness J.B. Pritzker says he's extending the Illinois moratorium till at least the end of August or August 22nd. But uh, but around the country, we could see a deluge. Up to 28 million people could um, be kicked out of their homes. So, yeah, if Republicans want to claim they care about the poor, well, it, you know, you've got an opportunity right now to come back to Congress and pass a bill that will actually help rather than punish poor people. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I just want to make one thing clear. It's not that... Rep- 
Republicans acting like they care about the poor. They're like defending uh, the poor from having been uh, insulted by the AOCs of the world. But yeah, they don't care about the poor. Although I will say this, my prediction is that they will cut a deal. Um, I feel I politically, I can't see how the Republicans could head into this election cycle without extending the benefits in the middle of uh, the pandemic, uh, particularly with the surge in cases throughout the country. Uh, and as you pointed out, people losing their jobs, uh, they could be shutting down the the, the bars uh, that have been just reopened. And so then you have a whole new set of people who are without work. So I, I'll tell you what, I. It's always difficult, Miles, for me to predict that the Republicans do the right thing. And I, I guarantee you, whatever package they put out there will be larded, as you pointed out the last time we discussed this, with hands out, handouts to wealthy corporations. Uh, so I guarantee that will happen. But I have a hard time believing uh, that Mitch McConnell, think about it from Mitch McConnell's standpoint. He's running for re-election. He's his uh, majority in the Senate is under siege. You know, he they could lose Donald Trump's unpopularity could take down the Republican Party and they could lose the Senate. Don't you think there's got to be somebody like a more of a less of an ideological brain and more of a practical brain uh, in the Republican Party? Well, I'd like to have higher hopes for uh, my <laughs> Republican friends. It's hard to see that happening because they've staked their claim on this president, you know, and supporting yeah. him at, at all costs. And I mean, that's the real difference, I think, now. But you brought up Nixon before. I think there's past, other past experiences where there's been pressure, but the pressure really only works when people from the president's own party start to speak out against their behavior and, you know, really push for a different direction. And so far, we've seen complete intransigence from the White House when it comes to, I mean, look from Stephen Moore to Larry Kudlow, all these advisors are saying we just, we can't have any aid to states and municipalities. I mean, they have said that's a red line before. We'll see how that holds up. But that just means that all these areas that have been and, and without support for testing or contact tracing as well, that means that the, these states are going to be facing an economic uh, black hole and could easily, you know, lead to massive cuts in public services. It makes you feel that, oh, maybe this is part of a larger plan, you know, by the right to, to destroy the public sector and especially to pu- uh, punish Democratic-led states and cities. Um, that said, I do agree with you that I think a deal will have to be cut because this it's not just Trump that's on trial in November. The Republican Party it has to defend uh, a host of Senate seats, um, state, you know, there's, there's uh, local uh, state house races that are going on. If the Republican, and look at, just look at the polls. Look what's going on. I mean, in Florida, which is, you know, went heavily for Trump, and Trump is, you know, depending on kind of like the Cuban vote to save him there, the Cuban expat vote. But the it's completely lopsided how they view his response to the coronavirus and his plan for school reopening because Florida is a complete hotspot. That's where you know Republicans say they're going to have their um, their convention next month in Jacksonville despite the fact even the sheriff there says they won't be able to have the security necessary to host 
convention because <laughs> there's a pandemic that yeah. is out of control there. So I agree with you. I think that the realities of um, life in America are such that there has to be a response from Republicans for if they want to save their political skins. Yeah, and the next time you come in the show, uh, I, I'm sure we can dissect that. And uh, there'll be ample evidence of the Republicans having shoveled masses amount of money uh, to their corporate cronies. Uh, so, you know, as we always like to say, uh, socialism for the rich and uh, laissez-faire for uh, the poor. Uh, all right, uh, capitalism for the poor. Uh, let's, let's move on to a discussion of Lori Lightfoot and the role she plays uh, nationwide. Uh, we're gonna, I'll ask Dennis to play some of the, the Raylo quotes from his, uh, Alderman Raymond Lopez's appearance on, uh, on Fox. But we'll start with just a general question. Uh, Miles, I'm telling you, I don't recognize the Lori Lightfoot as she's portrayed nationally. And I, I may have told you this, I get all these, um, the right wing uh, emails uh, from the Tea Party and various other right wing organizations. Somehow or other, they think I'm a right winger. So they send me every day. I get dozens of these suckers. And I'll give you an idea. Uh, there's this one. I may have read this to you already. Red Politics. Uh, and it says Kylie, who is uh, Donnie Trump's press secretary, slams insane mayor. How is this mayor still in office? And there's a picture of Lori Lightfoot. And to the right, she has become uh, the poster woman for the radical left. That's how they present her, an out-of-control, radical leftist Democrat uh, who is insulting Donald Trump. And they're really mad because she called the press secretary Karen. Now, that was a discussion. We, uh, we discussed this uh, last week. I, I don't think you were here. I had a conversation with Ramana Hussein about this. Uh, but so Lori Lightfoot on a nationwide uh, with the Republicans is viewed as this leftist uh, radical leftists here in Chicago, she's been battling the <laughs> the left in this in, in the city of Chicago since she walked in the office, and they view her as a centrist at best. What the heck's going on? Is this country schizophrenic, Miles? I think that there's uh, the reason that for the last point you made that uh, she's been in battles with the left is because. Uh, she reneged on her campaign promises, which were to the left. I mean, she had, I remember very clearly the, the mayoral race and um, Lori Lightfoot pledging to fight for an elected school board, for example, to reopen the shuttered mental health clinics, to, um, you know, pass things like a real estate transfer tax to fund, um, to, to, to bring down homelessness in, in Chicago. You know, take steps that would be necessary to provide more of a social safety net for Chicago residents and bring more democracy into, you know, our public square. And rather than doing those things, she has decided to take a very different tack. And that has been to, you know, do along the uh, Rahm Emanuel lines of focusing on public-private partnerships and opportunities to bring in the private sector to deal with uh, issues we saw that and how she even responded to uh, the the COVID pandemic. I mean, I wrote a whole article about how she 
has you, you see has these voluntary programs to help protect renters rather than put in place any real rules about um, how landlords can and development companies can evict and deal with um, uh, tenants that haven't paid rent. Uh, and we've seen this across the board. So I think that the reason that the left is upset with her, it's not just that they view her as, you know, representative of the corporate establishment. It's that she ran on uh, campaign promises that she has not fulfilled. Now, when it comes to the right, this is something that um, we've, I remember when Rahm Emanuel was mayor, and uh, I don't know if you remember this, Ben, I think it was in Time Magazine, there was a big, cover story called Chicago Bull, and it had Rob on the cover. And I think it was John Al- Jonathan Alter who wrote it, who was like an old friend of Rob. And it was all about how he's, you know, standing up to the, his opponents and getting things done. And it, it, this time, at the time, Chicagoans were saying, hey, look, this guy is trying to privatize our services. He's trying to cut our, you know, public service budgets. But yet, again, there's this disconnect between how Chicago mayors are viewed on a national level versus viewed, uh, viewed locally. Um, and again, I think it comes back to a question of, like, the, the, the right has made all Democratic mayors their enemies. So it's not a question of what Lori Lightfoot does. In their eyes, she's a, you know, another issue to be dealt with and an easy scapegoat for any problems they want to, uh, you know, talk about when it comes to Chicago. Uh, The other thing is that she has, um, I think that her supporters like it, you know, when she calls the White House uh, press spokesperson, Karen, when she gets into fights with uh, Trump on a national level. Uh, what they probably wouldn't like as much is Lori Lightfoot having a conversation with Donald Trump, which apparently happened a couple nights ago, where she said that she uh, was willing to work with him around these federal troops that are coming into the city. I mean, that's uh, that's not a story that I think works as well because Lori Lightfoot's base in the election was was liberals. You know, with people that are generally, I think, against Donald Trump and what he stands for. So I'm not shocked that there's, you know, that the that the right is hating on her. But I think if you take a deeper look, um, it's it, it's not as if Lori is a uh, a red or a died in the wool leftist by any means. Yeah, well, part of it is that uh, anybody who is left of the Republicans is automatically a leftist. uh, And there's very little nuance on the part of the Republicans when they talk about Democrats. Dennis, uh, that's, this is a perfect setup to introduce uh, Alderman Raymond Lopez uh, and his appearance on Fox TV. He is now sort of Fox's emissary to the city of Chicago. Uh, which you, you, I, I really don't care which one you play. Uh, I think I'm going to play the first one that um, after uh, Lori said that it's tyranny that the feds are coming in, uh, they asked her thoughts on that. So I'm going to play that. What did you think when you heard that? You know, it's unfortunate because the mayor has been going back and forth with the president who, you know, to be perfectly honest, I don't agree on many of his policies, but Mm -hmm. protecting our citizens should not be a partisan issue. As a Democrat, seeing my residents, seeing my family's gunned down is not a partisan issue. And for her to go for weeks on end, tweeting back and forth and making all kinds of comments, 
and then finally admitting yesterday that she's open to having the FBI, DEA, and ATF come in. You know, those comments that she made, you know, remind me of how many lives were lost because of the politics of grandstanding in the city of Chicago. All right. I've uh, already already vented on this one. I just hearing it again. I'm all set to uh, (laughs) uh, Raylo one more time. She was just it wasn't like she was just tweeting this without any response from Donnie Trump. He was fighting back. He's been using Chicago as a punching bag for three years. So stop acting like it all began with Lori Lightfoot. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that, Miles. But every time I hear him, it what is what's the word I use, D? Triggers a response in me. Uh, a very millennial word. I'm feeling very millennial today. All right, what response did uh, that trigger in you, Miles, when you heard it? Yeah, I. <laughs> of all the people to you know speak out against the mayor, I think that uh, Ray Lowe is one of the most problematic, and that you know he's he often finds himself critical of of Mayor Lightfoot, but not for the same reasons as many of those of us on the on the left are. Um, initially, many of his issues with her were about trying to you know change aldermanic prerogative and. Um, he comes from a very different political uh, perspective than, say, you know, Ron, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez or Carlos Ramirez Rosa or Byron Cicca Lopez, people that, you know, are also on the council and very critical of uh, Lori Lightfoot. Those type of people would not be invited on Fox News. You know, the type of people that get invited on Fox News and people like Raymond Lopez or previously uh, Joe Moreno, my former alderman from the, the first ward, who I remember going on Fox News back in 2012, I think, to talk about how the Chicago public schools needed to be blown up. Speaking out of right? Um, and he eventually changed his position. But these are the type of uh, interviews that Fox wants to get, you know, people are going to be critical of the mayor, but not from the left necessarily more from the right. So it's unfortunate to see, uh, that happen again with, uh, with Alderman Lopez. Yeah. Uh, I, we were joking earlier in the show about when Proco Joe went on, uh, and that's when he said, uh, his famous line or famous for me anyway, how much he loves teachers, but does not like teachers unions The overlooking the fact that teachers unions are filled with teachers. They only like teachers when they're getting, you can knock them around a little bit, tell them to shut up and fall in line. Then they love teachers, but when teachers get organized in a union, I hate unions. Sorry, Miles, I didn't mean to go on that uh, rampage there. Just thinking of pro-coach shows. That and the fact that I cannot... Hey, D, talk about triggering me. You mentioned Proco Joe, and all I could say is 90s rock. The man loved 90s rock. Miles, do you love 90s rock as much as Proco Joe, or do you... I think I do. I think actually I would, uh, you know, I don't often uh, offer myself up for this, but I would be willing to go head to head on a, you know, 90s alt rock uh, uh, competition with him in terms of knowledge. I'd Whoa. <laughs> well, you don't know what you get. Listen, I don't agree with Proko Joe on, on many things. And politically, he's way to the right of me. But he, I got to say this about him. He does know his 90s rock. He loves his 90s. So maybe, I don't know where he is these days, uh, so I don't know if we'll ever get back I'm up for the challenge. Miles, in your, the challenge. in your opinion, who's the greatest 90s rock band? Oh, well. There's you seem like so a Nirvana many. guy. 
I am kind of a Nirvana guy, but I have to say because it's still within the 90s, my top is Rage Against the Machine. I am a diehard Rage fan. So, All right, uh, all right. I'm a Stone Temple Pilots guy. Okay, well, Scott Weiland is a great, uh, uh, a great singer, was a great singer. But I'll say this. One of the things that really upset me about uh, Moreno is people always called him the hipster alderman. And so yeah. he's a great fan <laughs> And it's because he like went to the empty bottle a few times or something. Well, you know, I, I think if that's our represent, we could use some better representation for our hipsters. And- <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Byron Sixual Lopez is kind of a hipster guy. What do you think? He's kind of a hipster guy. He's been on the show a few times. He's pretty a hipster guy. Yeah, yeah. I'd um, say he's a hipster alderman. I'm, I'm not sure who the most hipster alderman is. I got to think about that one. Yeah, I got to think about that one too. Uh, I'm definitely not a candidate in any way for the hipster alderman. You guys are doing 90s band. I'm, I was trying to jump in the conversation. I can't name a 90s band that you guys did. I only know Nirvana because Dennis always talks. Oh, no. He Rage Against the Machine. Uh, Dennis quoted a song. I've been introduced me to a song, and I really uh, enjoy the lyrics. Oh, and you know Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, yeah, man. (laughs) (laughs) The 90s was the 70s, man. That's the decade, Miles. Come on, Miles. Get get with it. All right, Miles. Now, I got to ask you about this. Uh, This story just came across. I saw it on on my phone. Breaking news. Uh, Trump decided to cancel his Jacksonville uh, appearance, uh, which was utter insanity. Anyway, I've talked so much about this on the show. It just shows you the, the, the raging ego of Donald Trump. Uh, he wanted to have a convention arena filled with adoring fans looking up at him with adulation in their eyes uh, while he gave his uh, campaign acceptance or his uh, nomination acceptance speech. North Carolina wouldn't uh, bend to his desires, so he uh, got Florida to open up Jacksonville to him. And then about two weeks after they cut that deal, as you know, uh, there was a spike in Florida, and now they're freaking out. I finally, uh, he bent to reality, and he's not going to do the Jacksonville. This just popped across. Uh, this this just a, President Trump said that he had canceled the portion of the Republican National Convention slated for Jacksonville, Florida, citing the virus. Do you think Donald Trump has the discipline to actually be presidential uh, in regards to the pandemic? Uh, I mean, he did cancel the convention speech there. He did allow himself to be photographed wearing a mask. The bar is so low when it comes to Donald Trump uh, being rational. I find it hard to believe that he could stay uh, in this role for more than a day or two. What's your thoughts? Donald Trump ran for president promising deals. The best deals we're, we're going to get. You know, he's going to cut deals. He does the best, de- the most beautiful deals. I've heard so much about Trump's supposed deals. The one, and he, and he's and he's dealt with a lot of people. Mainly, that's meant things like you know just canceling the Iran nuclear deal and um, and you know giving up on a whole international programs because he didn't like that being negotiated with. So he just backed out of the deals. That's how he dealt with it. But you can't deal with a virus. You know, you can't you can't negotiate. Yeah. It's here. And the reality of treating it as a pesky distraction rather than actual public health crisis is that it's going to rampage through communities, cause mass death, and 
you know, foreclose on possibilities for large scale gatherings. And the, the reality of it is that at least Trump had to succumb to that truth. And it, I think, you know, I mentioned earlier, it was, I'm glad you bring up this as breaking news, but it brought up earlier that the sheriff in Jacksonville said we can't do it. We can't provide security for this event because of how um, how deeply the virus is circulating in the community. So. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm glad from a public health perspective that they're not gathering, you know, thousands of people together. I think we saw from Trump's attempted rally in Tulsa, which was a very sad affair, as we remember in terms of uh, the turnout. People don't have an appetite for coming out to support Trump when there's a deadly pandemic going on. Um, and as, you know, I've talked about before on the show, I'm actually a delegate for Bernie Sanders to the Democratic National Convention, they decided weeks ago to hold a, a, a fully a, a virtual convention, except for some speeches. Uh, that was the right move, I think, in terms of public health because of the situation we're in, which has to do with Trump's ineptness in, in, in office. I mean, in another country, <laughs> pretty much any other developed country, uh, they have the virus more under control and could potentially have some type of gathering. But uh, yeah, under these circumstances, it's just impossible. So I'm not shocked, but you know, <laughs> I think Trump waited as, as long as he, t- he could to try to, you know, cut a deal and it just turned out it's not going to work. You know, uh, listening to you talk, I realized I may have been uh, uh, too generous to Donald Trump. Uh, I was saying, well, he, he was considering the health uh ramifications listening to you talk miles i'm starting to think they were getting the word that no one was going to show up to this thing or very few people so it would be a a political embarrassment to have him convene this special gathering in jacksonville and it'd be like tulsa you know one third of uh, the arena would be uh, the seats would be taken and two thirds would be empty i'm starting to think that was the reason he canceled it's quite possible. I mean, if they wanted to have a safe convention, <laughs> the safest place to do it, if you're in Florida, is, I know this is a, a, a topic of interest to, to both of us, is the NBA bubble that they yeah. built in Orlando. That's probably the safest place in the entire state. They just did, uh, did a test on the 300-some players that they have three weeks after they entered, and none of them had contracted the virus because of all the, you know, the the restrictions that they have on people's movement and testing and tracing and everything. So, uh, you know, the NBA bubble is probably the safest place, whereas Jacksonville would have been Lord knows what type of, I mean, you see in Tulsa, the lines, there are people waiting an hour long, hours long lines just to get tested now weeks after that rally. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very much a public health hazard to try to uh, convene masses of people at this time. Uh, Miles, as a Bernie Sanders supporter, uh, are you satisfied with the uh, uh, the accords that Bernie and Joe Biden have been reaching uh, coming into the convention? Do you think the party's moved as far left as you think it should go, or do you think it has further to go? Well, as a democratic socialist, I am not uh, satisfied, I would say, with the current proposals put forward by the, the Biden administration. That said, there's no doubt that they uh, left a whole host of issues through those task forces, whether it's you know, investments in, uh, in stamping out climate change and investing in energy or uh, justice reform or even health care. I mean, they, 
I have been a you know big Medicare for All supporter. I think that that's the you know only way that we're going to actually provide care universally and uh, freely to uh, all people, which I believe is you know a, a right and something that the United States could very easily do if we had the political will to do it. That said. There's been there were a bunch of advancements in terms of how a public option would be uh, rolled out under a Biden administration, and how it would actually compete with the public market markets and uh, enhance Medicare and Medicaid. So there are I mean I mean I was heartened by certainly the people that participated in those task forces, and I think they do represent a move in the progressive direction. Um, if Biden is elected president, which I you know. Certainly, hope he is. Uh, that will require even more organizing amongst yeah. progressives and to push him. I think every step of the way on um, on all of these issues, whether it's healthcare or education or immigration, um, and you know, keep in mind we'll be dealing with the uh, the outcome of this disastrous economic collapse we're experiencing right now. Um, and under those conditions, that's when the deficit hawks come out, you know, and Joe Biden has certainly operated that way in the past, but, you know, years of spending money right now, I think, um, as plenty of economists will tell you, what we need is to juice the economy as much as possible to give people more money to, you know, provide padding so that we can actually get the economy going. So plenty of opportunities there will be uh, to, to, to push a Joe Biden to the left uh, if he becomes president. But of course, the first uh, task is to try to get uh, Trump out of office. Absolutely. All right, Miles, before I let you go, uh, tell us about any articles and in these times uh, that you want uh, people to know about or anything you want to promote. Uh, sure. Um, sure. So, yeah, please uh, check out IndieStimes.com. We've got a bunch of um, great stuff up right now. We've been covering, you know, the continued movement uh, for Black Lives, the movement against police violence. Um I actually also have a story going up uh, soon. It's not up yet, but uh, in Jacobin, which is a uh, case for public drinking, basically uh, uh, making the making the case that we need to repeal these disciplinary open container laws that exist in cities and municipalities across the country, especially at a time we have a deadly pandemic circulating that makes indoor spaces unsafe because you know you can't really socially distance there. Under these conditions, we should be allowing people to 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 drink in public. We're selling, you know, even Chicago has allowed the sale of to-go cocktails. Where do we expect these people to be drinking? You know, the the to-go cocktails. Um, there, I think that a lot of these um, laws come from a prohibition-era legal framework and have kind of this puritanical mindset. And it's past time that we um, repeal them. So that that article will be out soon in Jacobin. Uh, I encourage people to look out for it. And you can follow me on Twitter at, at Miles K. Lassen. That's M-I-L-E-S-K-L-A-S-S-I. Very good. Thank you, Miles. The next time we're in the show, we'll talk about that uh, open uh, drinking article. I, I did not know you wrote it. I'm definitely going to read it. Uh, and uh, I know Dennis will read it as well. Uh, we'll uh, dissect it uh, the next time you're on the show. Miles, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. I'll talk to you both soon. That's the great Miles Conflas. And I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.